This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome in to the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I am Dave Hellman, and it is always the games you don't see coming that wind up being the most memorable. Week 13 comes to a close in thrilling fashion. The Cincinnati Bengals without Joe Burrow go down to Jacksonville. They upset the Jaguars 34-31 in overtime. Don't lie to me. Don't. Don't pretend like this was a game you were jazzed to see. If you watched it at all, I bet you were a little bit late getting to the action. This is the classic game where you say, oh, I can stop and run a couple errands on my way home from work. I don't need to see all four quarters of Jake Browning against the Jacksonville Jags. Turns out, yeah, you did. One of the best primetime games of the season. We've had issues getting great primetime games in 2023. Not the case. Monday night football week 13, six lead changes in Jacksonville and Jake Browning gets his first NFL win sneaks past the Jags in overtime to get the Cincinnati Bengals back to 500, bringing week 13 to a close in style. We'll get to the news and notes of the day. We got power rankings coming up, but Let's dive into this thing really quickly because it, it's not just that Cincinnati like got by, you know, you can, you can imagine the blueprint for a backup quarterback winning a game. It wasn't this Cincinnati offense with Jake Browning roared to life. God, pardon the pun. I'm so sorry. Jake Browning, an absurd 32 of 37 stat line for 354 yards. He scores two touchdowns. Bengals obviously go over 30 points. They finish with 500 yards of offense, 491 to be specific, but give we're, we're among friends. We'll give them the extra nine yards, almost 500 yards of offense. Jake Browning guides Cincinnati on six different scoring drives including the one in overtime walk-off field goal by Evan McPherson. It's the Bengals first Monday night road win since 1990. Even, even cooler for me, Jake Browning wins his first game as a starting quarterback since November 30th, 2018. That was when his Washington Huskies beat Utah for the PAC 12 championship. Browning said after the game, it's been a long time since I've won a game. Yeah, you're right, buddy. All the way back to your college days. Browning is the first undrafted quarterback since 1967, at least. That's just when they tracked the common draft era to throw for 350 yards and complete 85% of his passes. Obviously, he had a lot of help from Jamar Chase, who does his thing. 149 yards on the day, highlighted by a 76-yard catch-and-run touchdown. Joe Mixon has the best night of his season, getting into the end zone a couple times. 
I will gladly admit it. I've said it a few times on this show. The minute Joe Burrow unfortunately got hurt on Thursday night against Baltimore, I wrote this Bengals team off until I saw a little bit more from Jake Browning. Guy had barely played meaningful snaps in the NFL, bounced around a little bit. To quote Shaquille O'Neal, Jake Browning, I owe you an apology. I wasn't really familiar with your game. If Jake Browning is capable of even scratching this level of play, obviously, I don't think you're going to play a game like that on a regular basis, seeing as how maybe two quarterbacks have approached a stat line like that all season between the completion percentage, the yards per attempt. But if he can even come close to it, then the Bengals have to absolutely like where they are alive and well in the wild card chase. They're just one game out of a playoff spot. And if Jake Browning, if, if you see him do it once, he can do it multiple times. That's what they always say. Be interesting to see how he follows that up. I love this stat that the ESPN broadcast put up there during the game. Jake Browning has been involved in 23 transactions since he originally went undrafted in April of 2019. He originally signed with Minnesota. He wound up in Cincinnati in 2021. The way that happens, 23 transactions. I'm sure this guy has bounced from the practice squad to the active roster and back about a dozen times with each team every other week. You're up, you're down, you're in uniform, you're out of uniform, you're not playing football. He gets a shot. Didn't play poorly in the loss to Pittsburgh last week. And then this completely changing the trajectory of what Cincinnati might be capable of entering the home stretch. Really, really fun story. Hopefully I've done justice to it because bluntly, if we're being really, truly honest, we're burying the lead a little bit because while the Bengals found a quarterback, the Jags for the time being, at least have lost theirs. Trevor Lawrence left this game midway through the fourth quarter with what they're describing as an ankle sprain. Still undergoing evaluation. Jaguars head coach Doug Peterson said he doesn't have a ton of information on it. He'll undergo the usual MRI, get everything checked out as always happens. They're calling it an ankle sprain. If that's the case, you would have to call it good luck based on what Trevor looked like leaving this game. You know, he gets rolled up on by an offensive lineman during a play. It looks really bad. He's slamming himself against the turf. He throws his helmet off in frustration. He's limping off the field. By the way, can we get the guy a cart, please? Can you get your franchise quarterback a cart to ride off on? I know it's scary when the cart has to come out. It's probably better than the guy with the bum ankle walking a thousand feet into the locker room. I Please, Jags, invest in a cart. But if it is an ankle sprain, you have to call that good luck because it looked like it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Still, it, it looks like dire straits in Jacksonville here on Tuesday because ankle sprains. Yes, it could be as few as two, maybe six weeks. As far as big time injuries goes, you can usually deal with that, but any multi-week injury becomes a much bigger deal when there's just one month left in the season. That's where we are right now. We're heading into week 14, five games to play, even missing two or three weeks starts to look pretty drastic. And if losing Lawrence wasn't bad enough, the Jags lost receiver Christian Kirk in this game. They lost left tackle Walker little. 
Have I mentioned that they lost the game, therefore dropping them to eight and four? They're just a game above Houston and Indianapolis in the AFC South standings. We talked with Ben Arthur yesterday about how tough that division is. Three teams over 500. This night began with the Jags expected to cruise to a fairly easy win and continue their push for the number one seed in the AFC. They would have been right there with Baltimore and Miami had they gotten it done. Now, depending on what we hear about Trevor Lawrence, they could be in a fight for their playoff life. That's not an exaggeration. Eight and four. They're a game above the other two teams in the standings. I just mentioned Cincinnati at six and six is right there in the wild card chase as well. If Trevor Lawrence has to miss a substantial amount of time, if CJ Beathard has to come in and do the, do the rest of the season or, or a solid chunk of it, you could very quickly find Jacksonville not sitting as pretty as they have been for the last few weeks of the season. I hate to overreact and, and Hey, <laughs> to be fair to CJ Beathard, we're just talking about what Jake Browning did for his team as a backup quarterback, but losing a starter even with as up and down as the Jacksonville offense has been losing your starting quarterback in December, not where you want to be. I would be remiss if I didn't mention probably the biggest bright spot for Jacksonville on an otherwise awful night. I just, if nobody else is going to champion Josh Allen, Jaguars, Josh Allen, I'm going to be the one to do it. Continued his monster season with a sack and a half and just the craziest interception you'll ever see. Cause it wasn't thrown by Jake Browning. It's thrown by Bengals receiver Tyler Boyd. Of all people, Bengals asked two receivers to throw passes on the night. Both of them went horrifically wrong. Jake Browning barely throws an incompletion all night. Go figure. But Josh Allen, 13 and a half sacks on the season. Now he's got a pick. I don't know if it's enough for defensive player of the year consideration, but what an incredible season that guy's having. I want to make sure people are aware of that at the very least. Obviously, the bigger issue Trevor Lawrence, it's going to be an anxious week in Jacksonville as we wait to hear what the situation is and how long Trevor Lawrence might be out. It also continues a larger trend with quarterback injuries this year. I don't think we can, if we've been ignoring it, we can't do it anymore. Shout out to NFL Network's Andrew Siciliano for pointing out that of the seven current AFC playoff teams, four of them would be without their starting quarterback if Trevor Lawrence is unavailable. More than half the playoff field playing without their preferred quarterback. And that's not the half of it. So far this season, roughly half of the league's preferred day one starters have missed time due to injury. And if you don't believe me, we made a list. It's right here. Aaron Rodgers, Jets, Anthony Richardson, Colts, Bryce Young, Panthers, Daniel Jones, Giants, Deshaun Watson, Browns, Jimmy Garoppolo, Raiders, Joe Burrow, the Bengals, Justin Fields with the Bears, Kirk Cousins with the Vikings, Matthew Stafford with the Rams, Ryan Tannehill with the Titans have all missed time due to injury at least for one game so far this season. Kenny Pickett of the Steelers is not going to start this week due to his ankle injury. We'll get to that in a minute. Trevor Lawrence, TBD with the Jags. And if you include Kyler Murray, who missed the start of the season for Arizona due to the ACL tear he suffered last season, that's 14 QB ones who have dealt with some sort of injury this season. We already do a lot to protect these guys. If anything else happens, I don't know what the league's going to do, but it, it, it's drastic 
Hopefully Trevor Lawrence can buck that trend. But right now, just a catastrophic night in Jacksonville for the Jags. A very fun one for the Cincinnati Bengals. We'll see where these two teams go from here heading into the final month of the season. All right, moving on from Monday Night Football, let's take a look at some news and notes from around the league coming out of Week 13. No item more interesting to me, at least, than the news that former Colts linebacker Shaquille Leonard has finally chosen a new team. Kind of felt like a college recruiting situation. Who's he going to choose? Who's he talking to now? He chooses the Philadelphia Eagles. Shaquille Leonard signs a one-year deal in Philadelphia on Monday, just one day after the Eagles' big loss to San Francisco. I joked on Sunday afternoon watching the Eagles trying to tackle the 49ers that Philadelphia general manager Howie Roseman was probably blowing up Leonard's phone. Turns out it might not have been a joke. Clearly, Philly has a strong need at linebacker. Zach Cunningham's dealt with injuries this year. Nicobe Dean is on injured reserve. San Francisco went after the Eagles linebackers on Sunday afternoon. Nicholas Morrow and Christian Ellis, long day at the office, particularly in coverage. Shaquille Leonard should help. I don't think he's the same guy that was all pro three times with the Colts. He's still a capable starter. Added depth gives you an extra body to help you weather the coming weeks and potentially, or or definitely in the Eagles case, the playoffs. The added, comp- the added component of this is that, as I said, the main competitor for Leonard's signature was the Dallas Cowboys, who have been thin at linebacker all season long. We should mention the duo of Damone Clark and Marquise Bell has been surprisingly solid since Leighton Van Der Esch went down. Clearly, it was still something the Cowboys were interested in. They invited him to their facility. They hosted him for a day. They were very interested as recently as Monday morning in getting a deal done. He opts for Philadelphia. I don't consider it particularly surprising of the two teams. I think right now Philly's need is more pressing. Perhaps they were willing to offer a little bit more money after watching what the 49ers did to them, but don't get it twisted. Dallas would have loved to have him. I I, I don't, I don't want to hear that revisionist history that you did all this work and talked all this time about signing the guy only to say, yeah, we didn't want him anyway. So They wanted him. Philly got him. I I don't know if it's the end of the world for the Cowboys, particularly if the young guys keep playing well, but it does just add that extra little wrinkle to Sunday. Obviously, we'll wait to see if Shaq Leonard plays a role. He was in Dallas to visit the Cowboys a week ago. He'll be back on Sunday as a member of the Eagles with a big, big game in the NFC East, the rematch between Dallas and Philadelphia. More on that later in the week. Further down the news bulletin in the AFC South, the Tennessee Titans fire special teams coordinator, Craig Ackerman. This one is interesting just because look every week in the NFL, every fan base, whoever is responsible for a loss, that coach, that player, people are going to call for his job. Oh, fire him, fire him tonight. Cut him tonight. Get him out of here. We don't want him. 99% of the time I'd call it an overreaction. This loss in Indianapolis or to Indianapolis, I should say, it's bad enough that it that it actually led to that decision by the Titans. I'm not trying to dogpile on a guy who just lost his job, but Craig Ackerman's special teams units had punts blocked on consecutive possessions, one of which was returned for a touchdown. The other one led to a Colts field goal. Oh, and by the way, the second punt block 
resulted in a knee injury to Titans punter Ryan Stonehouse. He's done for the year. If that wasn't all bad enough, Tennessee kicker Nick Folk misses a key extra point. Titans lose by three in overtime after all of that stuff just happened. I mean, it, it's not an exaggeration to say special teams miscues very directly cost Tennessee a game. Typically, it feels unfair to pin a loss on one person or one position group. Feels merited here. Can't say I'm terribly surprised that it happened. Now let's move on to the big, big storyline of the day, the circus in New York. The Jets quarterback situation sinks to a new low. It's completely befitting of what played out on the field. I'll say this for the Jets. It took a long time for this quarterback storyline to truly turn into a circus, but man, oh man, did we make up for lost time. Like I said, the game itself was the catalyst. Tim Boyle and Trevor Simeon both got a chance to play for the Jets against Atlanta on Sunday. I know the weather was bad. I know there was a driving rain, but they complete 50% of of their passes. The Jets fail to score a touchdown for the fourth time in five weeks. They lose 13 to eight and you're probably like, oh, they scored a touchdown and went for two and didn't get it. No field goals and safeties, man. That's what's happening in Jets land right now. Field goals and safeties. They have the third worst scoring offense in the NFL. That's all bad enough, but it's very normal for bad teams, especially when you get into December. These types of things happen when you're starting to see the season slip away. Just ask the New England Patriots. But the the story takes a turn for the surreal on Monday morning when Diana Rossini and Zach Rosenblatt of The Athletic report that the Jets want to turn back to Zach Wilson their former number two overall pick who they've benched two weeks ago. The only problem, Zach Wilson reportedly is apprehensive about starting again, possibly due to injury concern. Next up comes the report that Aaron Rodgers has reached out to Zach Wilson to talk him into taking the starting job back. Hey, man, uh, you know, this might actually be a bad look for you if you don't do this. Maybe you should start for the New York Jets. Maybe, I know, I know it's terrible out there, but maybe you should do this. Later on in the day, as all of this news is circulating, Robert Sala meets with the New York media and says that if Zach Wilson was hesitant to play, he wouldn't be here. He adds that he just met with Zach Wilson and Wilson wants to play this week against the Houston Texans, but Sala hasn't made a decision about who the starter will be. That's where it stands as of Tuesday, at least. But knowing New York media, knowing what happens up there, who knows how long that'll be the case. I want to start with this. I don't have a problem buying a single word of this. I'm old enough to remember when Diana Rossini reported that Aaron Rodgers had a list of guys he'd like to play with, turned into a whole thing called a wish list. Aaron Rodgers said it was BS. He said, I would never make any demands of the Jets. I would never force them to sign guys. That's never what the report said. It said that Aaron Rodgers had a list of guys he would like to play with if he joined the New York Jets. And lo and behold, weeks after this, the Jets wound up signing Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb, two of the guys who were on the alleged list. I trust the information that comes out of that market. I trust Diana's information in this case, but honestly, regardless of what's happening, who's talking to who behind the scenes, 
this is just the most egregious example of a situation that's slowly, I'll admit, but slowly been heading off the rails ever since Aaron Rodgers got hurt all the way back in week one. The Jets spent all season opting not to truly do anything about their quarterback situation. Weekly updates on Rodgers' potential return to the lineup at some unforeseen date is basically as close as the as the Jets ever got to to truly doing something. No trade for Josh Dobbs, which seems to have worked pretty well for the Minnesota Vikings. Not even a Joe Flacco who played better in a loss for Cleveland this week than anything that's happened to the New York Jets in at least a month and a half. And by the time they got tired of Zach Wilson, it's too late to do anything to truly upgrade it. And you're stuck with the likes of Tim Boyle, another Aaron Rodgers addition, and eventually Trevor Simeon. As bad as Wilson might have been, it's been so, so, so much worse since he left the lineup these last two games. On one hand, it's Zach Wilson's job to play football, so that's probably what he should do if the team asks him to, especially if he wants to make an impression on any other teams because at some point, like his future in New York is done. Obviously, we'll see where the rest of this season goes. I don't see a long-term future for Zach Wilson with the New York Jets. But if he gets one last chance to start, he should probably take it. At the same time, I don't blame him if he doesn't love being asked to try and salvage what's left of this season after being very publicly benched for a second straight year. Like, I, I, I get it. I understand why that might rub you the wrong way. No idea where this goes. But my main takeaway is that it was always delusional to think the Jets could hold the rope long enough for anything regarding Aaron Rodgers to make sense. But I definitely didn't see it getting this strange. Let's finish up the news with an injury roundup. Unfortunately, some big ones on the list this week. None bigger than the news that Texans wide receiver Tank Dell has undergone surgery on the fibula he fractured in Houston's win against Denver on Sunday. Any major injury is a drag, obviously, but... Just such an exciting young player, the rookie out of the University of Houston, key part of the Texans' success this season, especially sad to see it happen to such a young, exciting player. Nico Collins, obviously the guy to watch in terms of C.J. Stroud and the Texans' offense overcoming that loss. I'll mention Noah Brown. Also, maybe second-year wideout John Mechie gets uh, some extra opportunities at snaps as well. We mentioned Kenny Pickett up in Pittsburgh. He also undergoes surgery for the high ankle sprain that knocked him out of Pittsburgh's loss to Arizona. Steelers coach Mike Tomlin said there's no fear that Pickett's injury will end his season, but the reported recovery timeline is also two to four weeks. So for those keeping track at home, I mentioned this about Trevor Lawrence as well. There's only five games to play. This could spell trouble for Pittsburgh. Even two games is a significant amount of what's left on the schedule. I'd expect Mitchell Trubisky to continue playing in his place, but the Steelers did also sign Trace McSorley on Monday as an added body in the quarterback room. We'll see what happens there. Down in New Orleans, Derek Carr is in concussion protocol for the second time in the last three weeks. He exited the Saints' loss to Detroit. He also left the game to Minnesota a few weeks back. In both cases, he's been replaced by Jameis Winston. I would imagine that's what will happen if Carr can't play this week. Winston has thrown for 264 yards and two touchdowns with three interceptions across four games this season. 
with the way the Saints offense has struggled this season, I'm not going to be surprised if there's a sizable portion of fans who actually want to see Winston get a shot to start this week against Carolina. That's all TBD. Carr has done a remarkable job of bouncing back from injuries so far this season. Also came back from that shoulder injury very early in the season. So I'm not going to write him out just yet. Already mentioned that the Titans lost punter Ryan Stonehouse for the season on Sunday. Mike Vrabel on the bright side did say that running back Derrick Henry is not in concussion protocol. So at least there's that. Packers head coach Matt LaFleur said Monday that they'll know more about Christian Watson's injury, hamstring injury on Tuesday. That's today. Keep an eye out for that update as we go. For the New York Giants, Terod Taylor is returning from injured reserve this week. Speaking of the Packers, the Giants host Green Bay Monday night football week 14. Would, would it be Terod Taylor or do the Giants roll with Tommy Cutlets one more time against Green Bay? We'll see what happens there. Last but not least, Puka Nakua has been diagnosed with a shoulder sprain, though worth mentioning he did return to the Rams win against Cleveland after suffering that injury. Speaking of Puka Nakua, what a wonderful segue. Good job, producers. Way to, way to make that all flow. It was an eventful weekend in the NFC West. The 49ers and the Rams each got big, big wins. Even the Seattle Seahawks on a three-game losing streak have a big week in front of them with the rematch against San Francisco coming up. What better division to check in on on today's show than the NFC West? That's why I'm joined now by Fox Sports NFC West writer Eric Williams. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, Eric, let's start in San Francisco with the red hot 49ers and that big win against Philly. I'm, I I doubt this group needs a boost of confidence. They seem like they're always very, very confident, but to get a win like that on the road and, you know, people talk about the number one seed being back in play again, what does it do for them just to have their goals that much more attainable because it did kind of feel like Philly was going to be able to hold off a rally. And now it looks like the door is right back open for, for San Francisco to make that push. I think any extra motivation you can have in the last four or five games of the season is going to kind of help propel you in that situation and kind of keep things interesting. And so, yeah, I definitely think it kind of gives them a little extra juice, you know, going this week's game against the Seahawks, a team that they, just kind of had their way with, you know, a couple weeks earlier. Um, The one thing that I kind of took away from that game is Debo is back to being Debo. And if you're the rest of the league, you you have to be concerned with that. He looked like the player that we saw a couple years ago in 2001 when he kind of earned that wide back moniker. Uh, You know, he he can score from anywhere on the field and he's kind of an X factor for them on offense. So now that he's healthy, and then he's playing with a kind of confidence and kind of swagger and smack talking and all of that. It just kind of gives that offense an extra dimension that's already scary. Um, and so for me, just kind of watching Debo do his thing, um, you know, I, I would be concerned if I'm other teams in the NFC, uh, you know, heading into the postseason. 
you took the question right out of my mouth because it was, I mean, it was vintage Debo. Part part of it's obviously because of injury, but it it mm-hmm. hasn't it hasn't been that year for him. Being able to show off what he can do like that, I assume it doesn't change too much for the Niners. They just have so many great players that they can focus on. But knowing that Debo's capable of a game like that, do you think Kyle Shanahan tries to keep that focus moving forward and get him a little bit more involved than what we've seen at times? I think so. But then you kind of have to balance that because the games don't matter as much as the postseason games. And so you don't want to overuse them. You don't want to try to give him 10, 15 touches the game because, you know, he's, he's been hurt so much during his career and he's so valuable to their offense. So I think you kind of want to kind of keep giving him, you know, five to eight touches a game, see if he can create some explosive plays. And then you just want to dial it back and, and get the ball to McCaffrey and other guys, because you really need him to kind of make those plays, you know, when they matter most in the playoffs. It's so, so unfair that they can approach it that way. Just like, ah, save, <laughs> save Debo for when the games matter. We've got like three other pro bowlers. We can put him in on. bubble wrap, man. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, it's a fantastic point with just, you know, just a little bit over a month to play. We'll let, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep Debo on the, on the shelf until we really need him. God, it must, <laughs> it must be nice to be the Niners. All right. First world problems. Let's keep it pushing in the NFC West, a big, big win for the LA Rams. They kind of mm-hmm. reannounced themselves, I guess is what I'll say. You know, they're on a three game winning streak and, you know, beating Arizona is one thing, but hanging 36 points on, on Cleveland and, and really convincingly beating a, a playoff caliber team. I think it's another kind of statement. I feel like when we talk about the Rams, I think we're, we're all pretty familiar with, with Puka Nakua and Matthew Stafford mm-hmm. and Cooper cup. I do want to talk about the Rams defense though. Cause all of a sudden you look at it over the last four or five games, they're allowing 17 points per game. And I'm just curious, mm-hmm. you know, Raheem Morris's group, we know about Aaron Donald, but what else or who else is stepping up on this Rams defense? That's got them playing so well. Yeah, some young guys on the defensive line are playing well for them. Uh, Kobe Turner uh, next to Aaron Donald inside. And then uh, I'm blanking on his first name, but but Young, their defensive end. That's Byron Young. He's yeah. played well for them. Byron Young, thanks for helping me out there. Uh, he's done a nice job off the edge. And then having John Johnson back in the secondary, partnering uh, with, 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 with Fuller, those guys played together couple years ago and and were a nice partnership. And so it kind of solidifies their, their back end uh, defensively. Witherspoon is doing a good job at corner for them and, and kind of emerging as a playmaker. Uh, Kobe Duran is still a guy that, that, that gets it done at the slot. Uh, obviously um, Ernest Jones in the middle has done a nice job as is their leading tackler. Uh, it's kind of stepped up with Bobby Wagner now in Seattle. So it's a bunch of different young guys along with obviously Aaron Donald, uh, that's leading that defense and making a lot of plays and, and kind of making uh, a nice compliment to what they can do on offense. Um, the other thing with the Rams is, again, I, I kind of thought that they were going to be better than maybe people nationally thought they were because I have so much respect for Sean McVay as a coach. He really knows what he's doing and does a great job of relating with players, is good schematically. And and I think he's just kind of been rejuvenated after going through that five and 12 season last year, and then kind of figuring out whether or not he really wanted to coach. Um, you know, he kind of, he's, he brings up joy all the time and wanting to have fun uh, while obviously, you know, being productive and, and doing a good job with the X's and O's. And, and he seems to be 
enjoying coaching this group. And so whenever you talk to him, he's just kind of lights up, uh, you know, when he talks about, you know, how this team is done at six and six, this is a scary team if they get in the postseason. And, and I say that because this isn't a team that, um, Hey, you know, we kind of made it the playoffs. That's cute. And they're going to be one and done. You're talking about guys that have rings. You know, when you talk about Matthew Stafford, Aaron Donald, Cooper cup, they've been in big situations and won games. And you talk about the Niners, they play the Niners tough, you know, just because they know each other so well. When you talk about Shanahan and McVay. So if you're the Niners and you don't get that top seed, you're the number two seed and you have to host Los Angeles. I mean, that's that's kind of tough for, for a first round game. We are getting a little it, it, it's it's too hard to project that. But the season finale. Yeah, it's. It's Rams at Niners there to wrap up the season. I seem to recall that being the circumstance in 2021 <laughs> and it was a preview for a hell of an NFC championship game. So mm-hmm. like I said, I th- getting a little premature, but I mean, it has been a really fun month for this Rams team and you kind of just touched on it, but I mean, like, and, and you know, may, I should have talked to you back in August, man. Cause I'll be honest. I, it was such a slog to watch the Rams because they were so beat up last year. It was easy mm-hmm. to, it was easy to forget how much talent is really there. So regardless of where they go here over the next four or five games, what do you think the mood is in the Rams building about just how quickly they've been able to bounce back? And, and all of a sudden, you know, regardless of, of where they go in 2023, the future looks fairly bright for the Rams. I think they're actually going to have a first round pick next right? year. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see if they actually make it or if they just go with the, you know, F those picks and, and, and do something different. Hopefully uh, they, they, they make a pick and, and maybe, maybe get a quarterback, you know, with, with uh, Matthew Stafford getting a little bit up there in years. I think the, the mood is, 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 is good and the energy is good because of what they were able to accomplish and it's everything they kind of talked about going into it you know kind of resetting you know getting their cap straight which was that you know they got rid of a bunch of players going young you know 14 picks in last year's draft nfl high and then developing those guys and, and having those guys come and, and and play significant roles this season um, it's been interesting to watch these rookies evolve. You know, Puka Naku is kind of the face of those rookies because of, you know, all, everything that he's done. But there's been another, a bunch of other guys, and we've kind of talked about them on the defense side of the ball that have, that have emerged and, and, and made plays. And so, you know, they're no longer rookies. It's the end of the season. Um, and then they're going to have a chance to continue to add in the offseason. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've kind of done what the Seahawks did last year. They went young. They, they did a great job in the draft and bringing guys in. They developed maybe quicker than, than, you know, expectations outside of the organization. And now they really have an opportunity to seize on that in the offseason and continue to build on it. And, and again, kind of put themselves back into being a, a playoff contender a lot quicker than, you know, people uh, nationally thought. It just feels like a very fun place to be playing with house money in heading into December of a season. You mentioned Seattle, let's wrap it up with the Seahawks. I know moral victories aren't a thing in the NFL. I'm sure Pete, I'm sure Pete Carroll doesn't believe in them, but it kind of felt like one to me Thursday night in Dallas. I know they got the mm-hmm. loss. I know they surrendered the halftime lead, but one of their best games of the season offensively, particularly on the road against one of the better teams in the NFC. 
how can they harness that performance into to trying to get off this losing streak? I don't know, but I'm sure Pete's going to try to do that during the week. He, he's he's going to be doing his best motivational stuff going into this game against San Francisco because it was such a bludgeoning up there in Seattle. Um, it's hard to see them to, to being able to compete with the way that they played San Francisco a couple weeks ago and the way that San Francisco is playing right now. But if anybody can kind of you know do the Jedi mind tricks and get his guys thinking that they can and believing that they can win, um, you know, I think it's Pete. Um, they're going to have to control uh, the ball and control, you know, time of possession in my position, my uh, opinion, which means they're going to have to be able to run the football against San Francisco, which they haven't really been able to do for the last couple of years. If they can run it um, and 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 keep San Francisco's offense off the field and, and hold them down maybe under 20, 25, which, again, seems really hard to do with the way San Francisco's offense is playing – uh, they'll have a chance. And then I think they also have to take the ball away. You know, and they need two or three turnovers to be able to take a couple possessions from San Francisco's offense and, and kind of muck the game up a little bit. Um, you know, we'll see if they're, if they'll be able to do that. We'll see if Gino can play like he did last week too. I think that would be important for that offense. Um, well, incredible performance by Gino Smith. Like I said, I mean, it doesn't count in the standings, but I mean, that's, that's what you're hoping for when you re-sign him to that contract. Hopefully he can keep it going. I know this has potential to age poorly. So if, if the Seattle social team is watching this, feel, Uh feel free to clip it out. But I, I I looked this up. I'm just curious. Three, three straight losses. That's the, the Seahawks have three straight. It's the, it's tied for the longest losing streak of Pete Carroll's tenure. there, going all the way back to 2010. They've never lost more. And you look at the schedule. Beating San Francisco sounds really, really hard. Right after that, beating Philadelphia sounds really, really hard. I mean, this this at least has the potential for uncharted territory for Seattle. I mean, if these games get away from them and you're looking at four or five straight losses, I mean, what is there any level of concern about what happens there when a, when a team that's had so much success is in danger of letting the season slip away? Good question. I mean, yeah, that's a great point. And I kind of knew where you're going there because uh, I was I was there at the beginning with Pete. And you're right. I mean, he's done such a great job of avoiding those long losing streaks and being able to kind of, you know, snap them. Um, but yeah, I mean, six and eight is kind of staring at him, right? I mean, let's be real. Yeah. And so if, if you do get to that point, I mean, we kind of talked about it a week ago. You know, do you look at the quarterback situation? Um, you know, What's Pete's situation? You know, does he does he want to continue to coach? Not that he can't, but you know, he is seventy two. I, I think he's still going to coach for a couple of years. But um, you do have to kind of take a more holistic look at what they're doing if they they don't get in the postseason and they finish with a losing record. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot's on the table in terms of you know personnel um, approach in the off season, uh, the kind of players that you're going to want to bring in, the kind of players that you want to continue to keep. Um, you know. I still feel like they need to get a little bit younger at a couple of different positions and they need, they need to improve their team speed. I think that's the one thing that stands out when they play against San Francisco. I just feel like San Francisco is, is faster and, and more physical at this point. I think to be fair to the Seahawks, I think San Francisco is faster and more physical than just about everybody in the NFL these <laughs> days. But Hey, and you know, to all my Seahawks fans, it's the division. I think it would be silly to write this off ahead of time just because of what happened yeah. on Thanksgiving. So we'll see what happens. But 
setting up to be a fascinating final month in the NFC West. Eric Williams, we'll be sure to check in with you on how it's all going. Appreciate the time, man. Yeah, appreciate you having me. One last piece of business before we officially move on to week 14. Everybody's done playing. You know what time of the week it is. It's time to look at the power rankings. It's time to make sense of this muddy, muddy league. And I got to tell you, I look forward to it less every week because the lesson learned is the top, sure. The bottom, sure. It's all starting to make sense. In the middle, I don't know. We got upward of a dozen teams that all look about the same. Please, yeah, pull pull back the curtain, pull back the camera to reveal the big power ranking board, and it's just a free-for-all. I would say between about number eight and number 20. Sure, yeah, so we'll do our best to make sense of the whole thing. Not going to bother with the dregs of the league. They They stay about the same and move some pieces around every week, depending on who looks the least sad. But let's start. Right there on the on the outskirts of relevancy, a team that I actually dropped after a win, the Los Angeles Chargers, down two spots this week after beating New England to improve to five and seven. And I, if you saw anything about this game, I think you know why I did it. Six to nothing against the team that I have ranked dead last in the NFL. The LA Chargers, even in victory, are just a frustrating disappointing team. And I know it was a driving rainstorm. Miss me with that. The 49ers and the Eagles played in the same weather. The Dolphins and Commanders played in the same weather. Even Arizona and Pittsburgh played a more entertaining game in bad weather than six to nothing. Chargers, you continue to befuddle me even when you win. Number 22 feels about right. At number 13, Two teams take a big jump. The first of the ones we want to talk about, the LA Rams. We've mentioned them plenty already this week. They're up six spots from last week to number 13. And the main reason is, look, everybody in the middle of the league hierarchy lost this week. Denver goes down. The Rams themselves got a big win against Cleveland. The Pittsburgh Steelers don't just lose, but they lose their quarterback. So yeah, jumping up six spots feels justified. We talked to Eric about the Rams defense really playing well over the last month. You know all about their offense. This is a a very interesting team. Eric, I'll I'll continue to quote Eric. The, the, The veterans they do have know what it takes to win a Super Bowl. I don't think this is a team that's going to put together a real run, but I do think it's a team that could be a major pain in the ass for a lot of teams that they play. Speaking of which, the team right above them also up six spots, the Green Bay Packers. Both of these teams riding three-game winning streaks. The Packers are now at 12. Feels fitting. They are a playoff team for the time being anyway. We'll see where they go with it. But, man, I can't say enough about how fun Jordan Love is, how cool it is to watch this offense continue to grow into its own. And the Packers don't have an overly difficult looking schedule. We already mentioned they got the, they got the giants this week. Panthers are still on the schedule. Another bears game. I know you clearly as Jake Browning reminds us, you can't just assign wins and losses ahead of time. Despite what the college football playoff committee might want to tell us, (laughs) but I like the Packers odds at continuing this run. I'm sure they're not going to win out. 
but I think the Packers finish with a winning record. I think they've got a great shot to be in the playoff field when it's all said and done. Moving on, number eight, up one from last week. I've got the Houston Texans. Again, with all the chaos around them, what else am I supposed to do? It feels weird to have the Texans ranked so firmly above a Jaguars team that just beat them at the buzzer a week ago. But the Jags might be without Trevor Lawrence, and they lost to a backup quarterback at home. The Bills were idle. The Chiefs lose. Like, wh- who, who, who do you put there? C.J. Stroud is him. C.J. Stroud's going to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. The Texans' defense flexes its muscle against Denver on Sunday. Will Anderson looking like he could be a late addition to the Defensive Rookie of the Year conversation. It seems weird to have this young upstart team that's not leading their division so firmly in the top 10 based on everything that's happening around them. I think it's justified right now. Just mentioned the chiefs. They fall down three spots. The chiefs at seven are the last of the teams that I truly and deeply believe in. Like I think the cutoff for teams that I can imagine getting to the super bowl is probably seven. I guess I'm keeping my eye on the Buffalo bills and maybe we'll throw the Jags in there depending on what's going on with Trevor Lawrence. But right there at seven, I think is the cutoff of teams that you firmly believe in starting to get worried, not, not worried, but starting to get there with Kansas city. They haven't won consecutive games since before Halloween, just trading wins and losses. Every time it looks like they're taking a step forward, they fall back mistakes, bad chemistry, bad plays at the wrong time. Just even with the officiating controversies at Lambeau field on Sunday night, they were outplayed by an upstart Packer team. The reigning champs We're not writing the chiefs off. I don't believe in doing that. As long as number 15 plays for them starting to get concerned though, would like to see some growth in the right direction that they can maintain over multiple weeks. It just hasn't happened yet. All the way up at number one, I said this was going to happen. I definitely, I didn't see a complete blowout coming, but I knew if the 49ers went to Lincoln Financial Field and beat the Eagles, they would move up two spots and be the number one team in the league. That's exactly what they do. They leapfrog the idle Ravens. I don't know how else I, how much I need to say about this. They smacked the Eagles around for three quarters after a slow start, 450 yards shut down the Eagles offense, scored touchdowns on six straight drives. They've now beaten the two best teams in the NFC other than them by a combined score of 84 to 29 throw in the 34, three beat down of Jacksonville. I said all this already. They're the most talented team in the league. They got the best resume in the league. I got nothing else to say other than I, I would love to see the team that has the blueprint to beat a fully healthy 49ers team in a big spot. That does it for this show. We've got so much to get to this week. Just mentioned the Eagles, another big one on the horizon. Cowboys Eagles on Sunday night, plenty of other fun matchups to get to. We've got Patriots Steelers on Thursday. We'll find a way to make that fun. Don't you worry about it. I'll, I'll brainstorm on it over the next couple days. Plenty of other news, notes, game previews, everything to get you ready for week 14. We will have it this week. To get it, make sure you find us on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Go find our YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Plenty of content coming up for you 
as we move forward into week 14. I will catch y'all next time.